0: You're listening to audio from Kings Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about Kings Cross Church, visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. So turn to Philippians four, chapter one through uh, chapter four, verses one through nine. Um, if you don't have a Bible, hope you have one with you. If you're not, there's a stack of free ones on the back. That's a gift, uh, our gift to you. Uh, by the way, I'm Chad. If you don't know me, one of the pastors here, I never introduce myself. Uh, Aaron is always good about that Uh, Pastors of King's Cross um, And uh, today we're looking at a passage uh, That's really all about Standing firm in the Lord Um, Paul has been harping on this From the beginning And he is going to begin Some closing remarks Uh, It's an encouragement uh, To finally before we head out uh, From this text To stand firm in the Lord Um, Would you join me in prayer To ask the Holy Spirit Would uh, guide our time in His word uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, for Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. And God, as we read today, as we study and look at this passage that Paul wrote, inspired by your spirit, I pray, Lord, that we would not only be hearers of the word, but doers. We've changed even in this time we have this morning to look more like Christ. Teach us through your spirit and guide us to your truth. We ask all this in your son's name, amen. Uh, Knowing what you should do is very different from doing what you should do, isn't it? Uh, The latter can be much harder to do. And there are occasions where you may even choose the opposite, knowing what you should do. Maybe some of you have an experience, I would imagine, over the course of your life uh, with a three-year-old. If not, let me introduce you. I have four children, one of which has just turned four, and I have, without fail, every one of them have gone through some point in their life, right around three, where they have got all these new um, abilities. They can walk, they can talk more, They've got more mobility. There's a lot more things they can explore in the world. And they're also getting a grasp for what it is that mommy and daddy do and don't want them to do. And it's right around that time, if you haven't had the privilege, believe me, it happens almost (laughs) with every one of them, at least once, where they will know, for example, don't touch that, maybe it's this iPad, and they will look you square in the eye. And they will make solid eye contact and be like, Like this. It's because they want to know. Does daddy mean that? What does that mean? Should I really do that? They're exploring, they're learning, they're growing. Unfortunately, that's a painful life lesson for them. But we have to stand ground in uh in our, we stand firm in our in our standards, but the, the three-year-old is growing and learning, and let's not be confused. We're Often, not much better than little kids around behavior uh, and the way we struggle uh, or even choose to not follow what God's taught us and, and told us as I was a little kid once I remember uh, I knew better even then um, nobody ever disobeyed as they grew older, did they no no teenagers that were disobedient in here okay so I, I don 't know maybe I was eight or nine years old. <clears throat> my mom didn't find out about this till a few years ago um, so Not a huge deal with, like, a crime. I just, I was left home alone, a lot of Lashkin Kid stuff going on here. Um, So I just went to the back closet in my parents' bedroom, and like any 8 or 9 year old boy, they had a closet bar rail, you know, all the clothes hang on, and that's a cool thing to hang on, right? I think pull-ups or whatever thing, jungle gym, I don't have one outside. So I was climbing on this and hanging on it, and it all came down, like, the closet just collapsed on everything. Um, so I then chose to immediately think, well, mom is not going to be excited about this. Dad is not going to be excited about this. They shouldn't find out about this. So I just went in the living room, sat in front of the TV, and never moved till they got home. <laughs> never moved. I was like, we're not risking this. I'm not going to be found anywhere near that closet. Okay? They showed up, walked in the back. Chad? I'm still watching TV. I ain't flinched. Like, hey, what's up? I wasn't back in the back. And they're like, did you hear something back here? I don't know what you know, talking about. What the time I was watching there? Popeye, Popeye cranked up. <laughs> we were turning knobs back then. Uh, <laughs> so I knew the right thing to do. I knew. I should have told my parents. I did not. That's not a good idea. Don't do that. I actually have now an eight-year-old who climbs on things and rips hooks off walls, but it's okay. That's what, comes, what goes around comes around, right? Um, well, as a believer, it's important, too, for us, as Paul encourages in 3.16 of this passage, live up to whatever truth we've attained. See, as we obey, God grows us in our knowledge and our discernment. See, as an eight-year-old boy, I knew well enough. As a three-year-old, they're exploring and learning. But we still need to live up to that truth as Paul's encouraged us. But it's really not usually as simple as that sounds, right? I can say that, but to do it is much different. And we can learn a lot of Bible knowledge and you might not—you might know all the right answers. But to actually apply that in real life is a whole different game. It usually involves other people and people are messy. We're messy. If you're involved, it's messy. Other people cause and make it, as we interact, those relationships make it difficult to apply often what God has commanded, what we've learned. A matter of fact, famed boxer Mike Tyson, if you've ever seen him in this fight, nasty dude, is often quoted as saying, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. The holiday season's upon us, and there's some of you who might rather get punched in the mouth than try to respond like a good Christian at a family gathering. Because families are tough. And though we know the true things to do, and we learn as we listen to Paul throughout this entire text, uh, all of the things he's been teaching the Philippian church, to actually put into action is what he's now talking about. He's making a final personal appeal. From the beginning of the letter, he's laid the groundwork for how the Philippians need to stand firm in the gospel. And now here at the end, he wants them to stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm. Like a team that's practiced everything and they're getting their final direction, their final reminders in the locker room. If you've been on a sports team, you practice and you practice and you know all the things and you have them in your head, but just before you go into the game to play, usually the coach is really applying it now in this scenario. Man, Make sure you have coverage here. Make sure you're doing this. You two, get on here. This play we're going to play. Now we're taking what we've learned and putting it into that specific game, that specific scenario. Probably even a better illustration would be like, A special ops team in the military that's been doing all the practice, all the training. It's like clockwork in their brain, but now they're learning the details of the mission that's at hand. And Paul is making his final appeal to to these believers as they head out of the locker room, as they head into the real game. They finish the letter, live like this, stand firm in the Lord. Believers, it's important for us to do this because like James tells us, both in verse 122, we should be doers of the word and not hearers only. And in chapter 3, verse 18 of James, he also says, It is a sin to know good and yet not do it. It's a matter of our heart to apply what we've learned. Now, if you're an unbeliever who's hearing this, there are all kinds of people claiming to follow Christ, and yet they live an angry, combative life. Um, Even as uh, Pastor Aaron has mentioned, the controversies of Of the most recent week We see uh, violence We see anger arguments uh, Arguments This summary right here This thought from Paul Is a wonderful picture of the unity Peace and joy That God truly desires from his people This passage is an echo Of the same themes that we have seen Throughout this letter Unity, peace And joy And we start looking at verse 1 of chapter 4. That's actually where we closed the last section of this passage. Paul is both looking back and summarizing what he said and beginning to introduce his summary that's ahead. Verse 1 of chapter 4. So then, my dearly loved and longed-for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Much of the same affectionate wording and language that he's been using throughout the, the text. He calls them his dearly loved, if you're familiar with any of the kind of Greek Greek terms, agape is, is, is that beloved, that brotherly love that's a root for this. He's, he's seeing them as a very close loved one, not only that they're a loved one, but longed for, a desire to see them. He's already expressed that throughout the letter, I long to come to you. His brothers and sisters, familial terms, my joy and crown. Not only he loved them, but they are a joy to him. That's different. I mean, I, I, I love people, but that doesn't mean they're a joy to me. You know, some of that makes you laugh when you think about some people, right? People get in mind, didn't you? They? But they're a joy. That's even in the first chapter. He talks about the fact that he is proud of them. He uses language like a Father. And he celebrates them. And he, in fact, even connects them with a reward. Like they're his crown. Like as he gets to heaven before the throne, he can celebrate as a reward to see the believers of Philippians join him there. And then his appeal, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord. So in what manner? There's a lot of ways we can break this down. There's a number of imperatives, but I think, The way we want to walk through this is to look at three broad topics that are all united and they all complement one another. The first one is practicing unity in verses two and three. And then we see Paul turn to how to live the gospel in all circumstances in verse four through seven. And finally, in the end of this passage in eight and nine, disciplining your mind and life disciplining your mind and life so look with me at verses two and three or actually starting at verse two because in practicing unity the first thing that he encourages them to do to put in the practice unity is to agree in the lord i urge yudia uodia and i urge syntyche to agree in the lord hot tip on on names you can't pronounce just say it confidently and roll through it not like i just did okay everyone will believe you know what you're talking about I urge you, Odie, and I urge Sintiki to agree in the Lord. This is where belief meets practice. Paul is now uniquely calling out two ladies by name in the church. The likelihood is that they already in the church broadly know about the conflict that's going on between the two. Otherwise, why he's putting them on blast. I mean, so there is something that is in the justice system. I mean, 2020 was... Rife with a lot of high-level disagreements. And there's many different labels they've been putting on uh, churches or on different groups of society maybe you're familiar with. Uh, was it the, the, um, the Great Resignation? So many people leaving their workplace and come because they want to work from home or otherwise. Uh, they're also in the church talking about the Great Sorting. Uh, where church groups are gathering based on those other issues and leaving congregations over masks, over protesters, over how the justice system does things, over whether or not their locales are restricting one thing or the other. None of those are primary. There can be gospel issues in there, but we can also disagree and talk about them with grace. We actually made a point to have some social issues on our membership questions early on, our core team questions. Not because we wanted you to think a very specific, certain way about them, but because we care how we disagree about them. And that is what Paul wants Euodia and Sentechia to know. They need to primarily agree in the Lord. The second portion of this, how we practice unity, is in verse 3. I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So first, we agree in the Lord, but also, as Paul's encouraging other members of the church, we need to seek to be a peacemaker. Actively seek peace. The whole church is aware of what's going on. Clearly, whoever this person is that Paul's talking to as a true partner knows about this, and he says... Please, I ask you, true partner, help these women who have contended for the gospel by side. Help them to agree in the Lord. Again, talking highly about their relationship in the gospel, but wanting them to agree on what's primary. You can be a peacemaker in all of your life, but please, especially in the church, let's cultivate peace. Don't sit on the sidelines and see disagreements over sideline items and issues and allow those to become primary and certain vision James 3.18 tells us this, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. For the church, for our health, for our righteousness of the entire body, we need to cultivate peace. Be a peacemaker. The second topic that Paul then turns to after this, which is not altogether disjointed, but it does fall under a different category, if you will, and that's living the gospel in all circumstances. Verses 4-7. through seven. And all those circumstances we can see from the text of Philippians, the range could be anything from whether you have opposition that's from outside the church. In verse 128, Paul tells them not to be frightened in any way by their opponents, so the Philippian church is facing opposition. It could be opposition from inside the church, where in 2-4, he's talking about, look out not only for his, uh, your own interest but also for the interests of others. Okay? He's discussing in this previous chapter, Euodia and Syntyche are disagreeing. There's opposition. But also beyond that it could be your life circumstances. In the letter to Corinthians, he talked about the Philippians knowing poverty. They had, been, they had seen poverty. But they also needed to be encouraged in contentment. Because he talks about not having their confidence in the flesh. and their circumstances in chapter 3. And then later we'll read in verses 11 through 12 of this same chapter. Where Paul illustrates for them what contentment looks like. You you could also, as I've read this, I've looked at it, you could argue that he is both giving a quick example in this section, an encouragement for them to stand firm in the gospel, and then in the end of this this, um, chapter, he is illustrating through his own life what that looks like. In verse 10, he says, I rejoice in the Lord because of your partnership in the gospel. He's demonstrating, I rejoice in what's primary so here we say how do we live in all circumstances whether you have much you have little whether you're you're on on the mountaintop and things are great or whether you're down in the dumps whether people are opposing you no matter what it is how do you do it first in verse 4 rejoice in the Lord always I will say it again rejoice he is repeating the refrain from last from last uh, chapter Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Our confidence, our celebration is in the Lord. Our joy is in the Lord and what he has done. We are not those who put confidence in the flesh, brothers and sisters. Paul gives no room. He says always. Always. Opposition and circumstances don't rob the joy of God's people. Because he's the God who's done great things for us. What is it that any man can do to us? So first, remember, rejoice in the Lord always, in all circumstances. But then in verse 5, Paul slides in this. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. This can sound like a list of things you need to do. It's not uncommon for Paul to wrap up a letter with a lot of quick charges. But there's unity here. There's unity in what he's encouraging that's around unity in the church. Because this phrase, let your graciousness, also translated in other versions, it says, let your gentleness. And there's some translations say, let your kindness. The idea is all the same. It's an attitude of kindness. It's having an attitude of kindness when everyone else would expect retaliation. And Paul says, be known for that. Be known for your graciousness. The Lord is near. God is at hand. Not that He is eminently about to return, the Lord is near, but that Lord the Lord is with you. The Lord is Near you, the Lord is in the circumstance; He is beside you. You have no need to justify yourself. The language here is is the opposite of what would be combative. Like you are not getting your way, but instead you need to be gracious. It's similar to what James four one through two, where instead James says that the church is in wars and fighting. And he asks the question, what is the source of your wars and fighting among you? There's a disagreement that's brewing. He says, don't they come from the passions that wage war within you? You want something. You desire and do not have. James is saying you want something and it's not what you have. And so you're fighting. Paul is telling you, let everyone know you by your graciousness, your gentleness, your kindness. That's something to be known for. That's not like, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's, that's not my reputation I'm aware of, maybe. I don't don't, don't fly off the handle. I tend to be so low key or either I just don't know what's going on yet to get mad enough. I don't catch up. Later I'm like, I should have been upset about that. But the truth is, I'll be real honest, um, you know, the people who tend to get less of our graciousness tend to be the ones who are the closest ones to us. We're comfortable. When I'm at home with wife and kids, I'm not, I'm not blowing up off a candle, but I can I can I can be irritated. And not gracious, gentle and kind. And even in those circumstances, as we have familiarity with one another in church, may that be our reputation with one another. Let's love one another and love the Lord so much that we are gracious to one another. Be known by those things. And in that way, you can stand firm in the Lord. And so if you have disagreements, if you have circumstances beyond your control, if there's opposition, you're rejoicing in the Lord, Paul says. Be known by your gentleness. Paul encourages us. But finally, in the end, ultimately, all those things that bother, worry, and you have anxiety about because you want but you don't have, he says, trust them to God in prayer. Verses 6-7 Don't worry about anything but in everything Through prayer and petition with thanksgiving Present your requests to God And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding Will guard your hearts and minds in Christ This echoes so of where earlier in this letter Paul says to do everything without grumbling and complaining Paul says here, don't worry about anything. I'm not going to play around with the Greek here. It says anything. Not some things, not a few things. All means all here, for sure. Rather, his encouragement is that you not worry about things, but in everything that would concern you, to have a spirit of thankfulness and gratitude to the Lord and trust him with it in prayer. This is also similar as we see that theme of where we work out our salvation. We work outwardly in obedience as God is at work in us. See that here in the text where, as you present your requests to God, then His peace, which surpasses all understanding, will be at work in you, guarding your hearts and minds in Christ. You you don't have to guard your own heart. You need to trust your circumstance. You need to trust your anxiety, your worry to the Lord. And when we think about worry and anxiety, some of us may struggle with that more than others. Uh, we need to acknowledge that. Um, we need to be careful about laying judgment where others struggle when we don't struggle there ourselves. Um This passage might not resonate that much with worry and anxiety for some. For me, it does not. To a fault, can I be honest (laughs) with you, I probably should worry about things or at least concern myself with things a little earlier than I typically do. And when I say that, I say this, throw an alarm up, right? Like there's certain things that are a priority that we might should look for. When Paul tells us not to worry, he's worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Look at creation, how God provides. There can be proper alarm and healthy preparedness, but some of us imagine the worst possible scenario and freak out about it. And Jesus says, if God cares enough to take care of the bird, how much more will he care for you? Martin Luther The great reformer is quoted as once describing his favorite preacher like this. I have one preacher that I love better than any other. It is my little tame Robin who preaches to me daily. I put his crumbs upon my windowsill, especially at night. He hops onto the sill when he wants his supply and takes as much as he desires to satisfy his need. From there, he always hops to a little tree close by, lifts up his voice to God, and sings his carol of praise and gratitude, tucks his little head under his wing, and goes fast asleep to leave tomorrow to look after itself. He is the best preacher I have on earth. Brothers and sisters, no matter the circumstance we find ourselves in, no matter the opposition we face, we can rejoice in the Lord and we can trust him with tomorrow so take your worry, your want to the Lord in prayer because ultimately he's the one that will provide all your needs Charles Spurgeon says that as a believer we can live with that holy carelessness which is the very beauty of the Christian life. When all our care is cast on God and we can joy and rejoice in his providential care of us. So let's rejoice in the Lord and cast our cares on him. Pray to him with a thankful heart for all he's done. Knowing that the God who has done so much on our behalf, brothers and sisters, how much more will he do for you and care for you and meet all your needs so the final topic that then Paul moves into is in verses eight and nine. He now says to the Philippian church, and he encourages us to discipline your mind and your life. How do we stand firm in the Lord? Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. How do we discipline our mind? We dwell on what is praiseworthy. We don't just think about it. We don't just consider it. We don't just notice it. This isn't like Bing Crosby saying, accentuate the positive. No, too old? No, we're not there? Uh, I got something here? It's actually very similar. They would be familiar with this list of something of a Greek list of virtues. It was common for them. And Paul is using what could be virtuous for anybody, right? I mean, we know that the world around us um, holds up some of these things. They hold up honesty and truth. They uh, have a desire for honor in some respect, uh, justice, purity, Lovely things, commendable things, all of these things. And Paul is trying to accentuate each one with his work. He's not saying whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. He's hoping for us to look at these and to consider whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just. He's giving us the broad reach and say, look around us and everywhere and everything in life and everybody and look for whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely whatever is commendable. And then he begins to narrow down because it's not just any moral excellence by the world's standards, but rather what is morally excellent by God's standards. He's talking to believers. And so we know it's not simply doing a good deed, but it's more than that that underlies it. If there is any moral excellence, if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on it. You know, there's a temptation for us to potentially create a hard, sacred, secular divide and to lose sight of the truth that God created the whole world and everything in it. Originally, it was very good. And though the world has been broken by sin, even within the fractured pieces of this world, we see glimpses of his glory. Romans 1 encourages us that his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. We can, in this creation, even in the brokenness, even in unbelievers' lives, celebrate the evidence of the creator, the goodness, the good things. All people are made in his image. In the image of God, he created them And his laws are written in their hearts. In the same letter to the Romans, Paul says when the Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have it. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. And Paul points to this saying that that's why we're without excuse, because God's law is in our heart. We know inherently what is to do good and since either accuse or excuse us. But when we see unbelievers' sense of justice, longing for righteousness, those are all a flash of the image they bear. And we can celebrate that. And how even more so should we celebrate and dwell on those praiseworthy things in fellow believers? Consider this in light of a disagreement within the church, which Paul has initially started to speak to, where Euodia and Syntyche need to agree in the Lord. How can they agree in the Lord? They can celebrate and dwell on what is praiseworthy. And it's not the matter, like I said, of just simply thinking, but to dwell as to take into account to have it laid as a foundation for the way you see the world that you would dwell in rest in and make your decisions in those things which are praiseworthy but if i see evidence of god's grace and his working in the life of a brother and sister i can celebrate those things and i can dwell in those things and even when we disagree even when we don't see eye-to-eye to eye on tough, tough topics, my graciousness can be known to everyone. And that God's kindness would be shown as I dwell on the image of God in them. And finally, not only do we need to just discipline our mind, but as we dwell, consider take into account how God is at work in and through other believers. We need to also imitate What is godly But also say imitate Those who are godly Because Paul says in verse 9 Do what you have learned and received and heard from me And seen in me And the God of peace will be with you His closing statement here Dwell on what is praiseworthy Set your mind right But also imitate Those who are praiseworthy like a John, not John, I'm sorry, in Philippians, this same letter, 317, he also said, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. He is continuing that same thought. Imitate what is God. That's how we grow. That's how we learn. That's how we attain greater and greater knowledge of what is right and good. That in Romans 12, that we would be transformed. We wouldn't be... Conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Paul's telling us to dwell on praiseworthy things so that we would know, we would discern what is the will of God. And so then live it out. And that's simply what Paul's encouraging us in the Philippians to do. To live your life in alignment with the gospel, to stand firm in the gospel. How? As you have seen the example in us. That's a gift within the church that God would pull together, draw together a people of different places and different growth, different maturity. We're not all on the same page. If you are in a room with a Bible study where you're all at the same maturity level, you will probably all stay at that same maturity level. If that's the only place you learn and grow, if those are the only ones you imitate, In His grace, God has shown each of us some piece of Him in His truth. Where we are at the right time, and I'm not saying it's secret, hidden knowledge, that's not the case, but we grow in obedience as we follow grace. And He grows in us. So, how do we stand firm in the gospel? Paul's encouraging us in this. Agree in the Lord. Cultivate peace. Rejoice in the Lord. Be known for your gentleness. Take every need you have to God in prayer. Dwell on what is praiseworthy. Imitate what is godly. And if you do all these things, the God of peace will be with you. He'll bring peace. We don't have to force it ourselves. It's similar and yet different to the phrase earlier where he says that the peace of God will guard your heart A military term that they would have been familiar with. Guard, that the peace of God is a garrison around your heart and soul. That he shores you up and strengthens you from within. But this is also different in that not only the peace of God with you, but the God of peace is with you. That's what we look forward to and celebrate in the upcoming Advent season. Emmanuel, God with us. That God has come to be with his people. And that he has promised the comforter would live in us. And that we can trust as we seek to stand firm in the gospel that the God of peace will be with us. And shore up our hearts. Encourage our hearts. Give us confidence. Take our anxiety and lay it at his throne. At his feet. Because you don't have to carry that burden. Praise God for him. Praise God that we don't have to worry about tomorrow. Because we know the God that holds tomorrow in his hands. Let's follow him today and stand firm in the Lord. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your kindness that you would even choose to teach us here today. We know with confidence because you have promised that your spirit is in us, God. Pray, Lord, that you would shape us to look more like Christ. That as you teach us day by day, we would grow in our obedience and we would learn to follow you more and more closely and make us look like Christ. Cultivate peace in our community, Lord, that we would seek to be in unity together, that we would lay down our own rights, that we would think more highly of one another and that we would seek the interests of others. God, make us all peacemakers. Give us the wisdom and discernment to see where there's a foothold of disunity. God, to encourage our brothers and sisters to agree in the Lord. Don't let the enemy find a foothold here. Don't let him cause disunity and stir discontentment. Lord, let us bring all our worries and concerns to you. And be a people of prayer. And unify us around the gospel. I ask all this in Christ's name.